0: Excuse me, I got my chamomile tea today, which is just the worst. <laughs> tea is already like coffee's sad little brother. Right, John? And then chamomile is just like the little runt trying to pretend like it's tea. And so it's barely there, but um, that's what we're going with. Um, I, I, I tested, it and it's not COVID. That seems to be the only thing people care about. You could have typhoid, the black death. <laughs> And they're like, that's okay, but you tested for COVID. Yes, okay. So, yeah, it's just just a cold, but you get the um, fun phlegm, creepy voice today. So praise the Lord. I'm happy to be back with you. We're marching toward Easter. We're unlocking some of the codes that are kind of in the the book of, of Mark. And uh, by the way, I was so blessed last week by the message preached by Melissa. Wasn't that good? If you weren't here, make sure you go back and listen to it. It was really powerful. Some powerful truths out of the Gospel of John, which is her favorite gospel. And that's cute, even though she's wrong, because um, Mark is just the more awesome. No, 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 I'm kidding. All the Gospels are good. Um, Mark is just a little good-er. Again, I'm kidding. The interesting things about the Gospel of Mark. It is uh, I do I do love the Gospel. I've just like come to like really love Mark. Um, for one interesting thing, it's if you look at it, it's the shortest of all the Gospels by far. It has like half the number of verses. Half uh, it has like fifteen thousand words compared to the next Gospel, of Luke, which is like twenty-five thousand words. Um, it is uh, also It's considered one of the earliest gospels ever written. It's like the source material for so much else that was written. And so Mark uh, was one of the earliest, the first gospels that kind of hit the streets and the churches started reading Mark uh, before any of the other ones, it's kind of cool. Also, what I really like about Mark is it's very fast paced compared to other Gospels. It moves at a breakneck speed. Uh, There's like, uh, I forgot what the statistic was, but just dozens and dozens of times the, the term immediately or right then or suddenly appears in the Gospel of Mark. He just writes this way and he doesn't spend a lot of time philosophizing. You know, like Gospel of John is very beautiful and there's like this high philosophy in you know, john you know it's kind of cool it's like reading tony morrison or something like that gospel of mark <laughs> is kind of like ernest hemingway i was an english major so that's the way i think you know it's like these little quick sentences and it's like he did this and he went here and he went here and he did that and he it just keeps moving so mark is kind of fun that way it even says like multiple times in mark it'll say like jesus preached this this message that astounded the crowds But it doesn't tell you what he said. And you have to go to, like, Matthew and Luke to, like, read the actual sermon, but it'll just say, he preached, and then he moved on. That's all you need to know. You know, like, Mark just wants you to get going, get going. So anyway, it's cool. I like Mark. I want to take a minute to remind us uh, kind of where we've been, because I know it shocks me every time uh, that... Uh, to find out that you don't always remember everything that I talk about, and that's so hurtful. Um, Not really. I promise not. I don't even remember what I talked about. I have to go back and look at my notes. Um, But we've been looking at different themes uh, regarding what it looks like to follow Jesus. That's kind of what we've been circling around. What does it look like to follow Jesus? And discovering that the way Christians talk about following Jesus often is very different from how Jesus talks about following Jesus. Uh, just different conceptions. And if you, um, if you remember the way Mark works, <clears throat> he brackets uh, he does this really interesting in way that he tells. You remember, we talked about the different gospels. They're not just, they're all just like four newspaper writers, you know, telling the story. They all have their own flavor. They all have their own style and voice and, and purpose. Like I said, you know, John is very philosophical, and he'll talk, he brings, you know, the glory of the universal Christ down to the, the dirt, you know, the one, the word, the logos, and whereas Mark's just like giving you this kind of fast, play-by-play, but Mark brackets material, if you remember from chapter 4 through chapter 8, through two Old Testament quotes that talk about Jesus seeing, but not really perceiving, and hearing, but not really understanding, and then in the middle, he, he, you know, explains that through stories, and then he sort of, If you remember a couple weeks ago, he flips where you expect him to go because he starts talking to the disciples like they're the insiders. And he's speaking in parables because the outsiders won't understand. But then as the narrative goes along, you realize it's the disciples. Mark, Mark flips it, and the disciples are the ones who are really missing it. And it's the outsiders who are getting it. The demon-possessed man and the, 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 you know, the guy with the legion of demons and the, the, the mixed-race Gentile woman with the demon-possessed daughter. You know, She's the one who gets it. And you have all of these outsiders who are seeing and perceiving, and the disciples kind of miss it. And it's just obscure to them. Today, we're going to look at Another bracket, this is from a bracket from chapter eight to chapter 10. Um, Mark introduces this sort of, you can think of it as a a bracket or a sandwich. I like that, um, obviously, why sandwich. Uh, And it's bracketed around the healing of two blind men. And this is done very intentionally in Mark. Three times in this bracket, uh, Jesus tells his disciples that he's actually going to the cross, and that's how his kingdom is going to be inaugurated and how he'll be exalted. And three times, the disciples just completely misunderstand, (laughs) and they try to correct him, and Jesus ends up having to correct them. So let's look at the first miracle in this bracket. This is Mark chapter 8. They, as Jesus and the disciples, came to Bethsaida, And so people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand. He led him outside the village when he had spit on the man's eyes, which is a really odd thing to do. And I've heard a lot of explanations for what's going on here. Uh, But with the spitting, there's some cultural context behind that. It wasn't like a completely out of left field thing for him to do. It was still odd, but we really don't have time to go into it here. But he spit into the man's eyes. And Jesus asked him, do you see anything the man looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes and then his eyes were open. His sight was restored. He saw everything clearly. Now, Mark, remember, he's telling this story to preview something for us over the next three chapters. And here Jesus performs, it looks like kind of a two-stage healing. And, um, and I've heard some explanations for that, too, and there is some, some good thoughts, uh, but I've come to believe this is not because Jesus was running short on miracle power that day. You know, he needed, like, oh, I better try again, um, but actually, because this blind man, as we're going to see, is a stand-in for the disciples, they don't quite see yet, but they're starting to, okay? And then the second healing, if we go to the, we'll just skip to the second healing in this bracket, is in Mark chapter 10. Here's, here's the other blind man. Remember, what Mark does is he's going to arrange these two stories, and that helps explain the material in the middle of the bracket. In Jewish poetry or Jewish writing, this is called a chiasm or a chiasmus. Anyway, you don't care about that. All right. Chapter 10, verse 46. Then they came to Jericho as Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city of uh, the blind man named Bartimaeus, which means... Son of Timaeus, thank you, Mark. Bart means son. So like Jesus would have been known among like people around him as Jesus Bar-Joseph, because he was son of Joseph. So Bartimaeus just means son of Timaeus. Uh, he was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began shouting, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him and told him to be quiet. And I love this line. And he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and, and said, call him. And so they went up to the blind man, they said, cheer up on your feet, he's calling for you. And throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. Now pay attention to this next question because this question is gonna come back in a second. Verse 51, what do you want me to do for you, Jesus asked. And then what's the blind man say? Rabbi, I want to what? See. See, I want to see. Now these two healings, Bracket three episodes where Jesus is gonna tell people that he's gonna be crucified, his disciples aren't gonna understand, they misunderstand, they're gonna object to it, and Jesus has to correct them. The first time Jesus is talking to his disciples, you might remember from a couple weeks ago, he says, "Um, who do the people say that I am? And they're like, oh, they think you might be a prophet. And he goes, well, who do you think? And they're like, you're the, remember Peter says, you're the Messiah. And Jesus says, that's right, don't tell anybody. I gotta go suffer, I'm gonna go suffer and die. And Jesus, remember he rebukes Jesus, uh, Peter rebukes Jesus which you never want to do because Jesus will rebuke you right back. And then Jesus says this in Mark 8, just to review, this is a review. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and what? Take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for me, for the gospel will save it. Which is beautiful, but none of us really believe that. What Jesus does here and we, we covered this a couple weeks ago, is Jesus introduces the cross, not just as a place where Jesus goes to die and rescue humanity from into heaven, but he introduces the cross as a way of life. He introduces the cross as a, as a pattern or a posture for living. And now, I mean, some of the disciples literally will go to a cross. They really will. Um, they'll get on literal crosses, but symbolically he's saying to the rest of us, Listen, what's true of people on crosses is now true of you. What's true of people on crosses is now true of you, that you are following a cross-shaped Messiah who sits on a cross-shaped throne. That's where he rules, over a cross-shaped kingdom, and thereby, that's how we live cross-shaped lives. Now, let's go back and look at a conversation that Jesus had with his disciples, right before he asks Barnabas, "What do you what do you want from him?" and heals him. So this happens just before the second healing, Mark chapter 10. Again, they're on their way to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished. And this is not the good side kind of astonished. They, those who were following were afraid. Uh, the, astonished can mean either like, "Wow, that's amazing," or like, "I'm kind of uh, I'm conflicted and offended." This is the bit they don't understand, right? Uh, they get that. There's a kingdom. He's been talking about kingdom. They get that he's going to be the king. That's awesome. And they understand there's glory involved, but they don't understand that the way this is going to be inaugurated is through suffering and through serving other people, not from a position of power, but as servants. Uh, and, and it just doesn't make any sense to them this, that there's cross-shaped glory that's going to lead to a cross-shaped victory. It says, again, he took the 12 aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We're going to go to Jerusalem. Now, that seems pretty clear to me. We're going to go to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man, that's a reference to the Messiah out of Daniel chapter 7, that he, Jesus uses the term to refer to himself. He'll call himself the Son of Man. lot. The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death. will hand him over to the Gentiles, the Romans, who will mock him and spit him and flog him and kill him. And then three days later, he will rise. It's pretty heavy stuff. Then John, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Cool. <laughs> and then notice, what do you want me to do? There's the same question, right? We, we recognize that question now. Same one he's about to ask the blind man in a few seconds. But notice how the disciples answer. The blind man says, Lord, I want to see. Which is the point of the whole section, seeing Jesus clearly. What do the disciples say? Let one of us sit on your right hand and the other at your left in your glory. In other words, Jesus, we know that it's going to be awesome here in a second because you are fixing to, like, come into glory in Jerusalem, and we'd like the places of honor. Now, I'm sure, I know a lot of you probably know this, but um, in, in Roman culture, like, where you sat at a banquet was a real signifier of your importance and so the host of the banquet would sit usually in the center he would have a real prominent place uh, at the center and he would usually be higher so like even elevation was important so he'd like have milk crates under his chair you know so he could like wave it wave at his guests he'd be up high and then people in sort of descending order of importance would be seated around if there were like if he was like somebody really important like a conqueror and there was enemies who were conquered they would be placed at his feet right that's where you would put like them they would you know bring him in just for fun Um, and so it was kind of like the high school cafeteria you can imagine you had the really cool people uh, you know at that table um, which I always saw from afar and it looked amazing because over here you had like the really uncool people and those of us me and the other lonely guys who listened to a lot of Rush and you know (laughs) argued over like who would win between Dukes of Hazzard and Knight Rider that we were over at that table cool people at this table And James, uh, I know, I just, like, if you're, like, under 40, you have no idea what I'm talking about. <laughs> James and John, so they come to Jesus, and they're like, we would really love the preeminent spots at the table if it's cool with you, Jesus. And Jesus responds, and I don't know how many times uh, he has said this to me. He says this, you don't know what you're asking. <laughs> Can you drink the cup? Wait, did I do this? Oh, wait, here we go. Can you drink the cup of suffering? I am about to drink or be baptized with the baptism of suffering. I am about to undergo. In other words, you think it's just glory. And I'm telling you, there's suffering first. There's humiliation first. And and they ignorantly are like, sure, we can. Sounds good. And Jesus said to them, oh, you will be drink from the cup and you will be baptized. In other words, you will suffer like I'm going to suffer in the future. But then he says, but to sit at my right or my left is not for me to grant. This is so prophetic too, because by the way, who are the only people specifically mentioned in Scripture at Jesus' right and his left hand when he is high and lifted up in his glory? Thieves on crosses. When Jesus is high and lifted up, that is who is at his right and his left people getting crucified right next to him this is why jesus says you don't know what you're asking verse 41 when the other 10 i love this when the other 10 disciples heard about this they became indignant now why do you think they were mad because they didn't think of this first they they're mad that the other guys thought to ask about this first right and jesus called them together and said you know what You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord their authority over their subjects and the high officials exercise authority over them. And there's this great line, not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the son of man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, I assume there's a few of us who've been in church for a while, right? I look around, I see a lot of kind of long-time church people, right? And uh, we've been in church, for, we've heard this stuff. These probably aren't verses like you're like, oh, I've never heard that. No, you've probably heard this, I know. And we're like, yeah, yeah, I know. Jesus is crucified, yeah, and he suffers, and we got that. We're not like those silly disciples who were saying, you know, who's the greatest? And, and we know that, of course, greatness in the kingdom means, you know, Humbling ourselves and giving status to no status people. We get that, you know, and loving the marginalized and welcoming them into our community and showing them hospitality. We all know that. And of course, we know that leadership is really just being a servant of everybody. We all know that. But none of us really believe this. Because, because what is the way, what is the natural thing in your mind that, the, if you're like me, maybe I'm projecting too much. What is the, that voice when you hear things like the Sermon on the Mountain, loving your enemies, the thing that wants to speak up is, that's sweet, but that's not the way the real world works. Right? We, we don't believe that this is the way the world really works. There was a political pundit. I won't mention any names, because I don't want everybody to get upset or anything. It just, it's just an example. There was a political pundit, last. I think it was last year, 2022, It got famous because it all went around viral and they were they were talking to a big room full of like It was like a conference or something and it was a big room full of It was like mostly like good American Christians and and this political pundit got up there and he said He said where's where's my thing? He goes we've tried jesus method of turning the other cheek and it doesn't work anymore Now it's time we fight And i'm telling you the christians in the audience roared with approval yeah, right? Because that's, that's what that little voice inside tells us. Like, that's really nice and all. But sometimes, I mean, sometimes, there's, there's really bad people out there. They have an agenda, right? And it's time we stop acting like Jesus and we draw some swords. And so I want us to remember this. I want us to remember that when people try to tell you that that Jesus stuff, all that Sermon on the Mount stuff, that love your enemies stuff, is sweet but it doesn't really work in the real world understand that what they're saying is that doesn't work in the fallen world and they're right they're absolutely right here's an inside secret for us jesus is not giving us advice on how to succeed in the real world that's not the advice he's given us. That is actually the lie of the modern church. That Jesus gives us advice on how to succeed in the real world, that is not. He's showing us how to reveal the kingdom. Amen. May your kingdom be made manifest on earth as it is in heaven. And what Jesus shows us is exactly right. When you start manifesting the kingdom, what happens when you put this stuff into into practice? It should not surprise us that the end result is not that you we end up in the positions of power. The end result is that we end up on a cross. That is what Jesus demonstrates for us, right? I think about I think about if Jesus were you know, Peter, this is the this is the mindset Peter had with Jesus. This is the mindset of Peter. I can just see Peter, like, sort of taking Jesus, like, Jesus, come here, come here, come here. Okay, Lord, Rabbi, come on, you're a sweet guy. Uh, I mean, your words, they're so good. I can see, t- you know, you're idealistic, it's beautiful, you just want everybody to get along. I understand, but, but Jesus, look, you don't understand. Um, because you're like a preacher but we live in the world those are real romans out there they have an agenda to like come after us and our families and our children and sometimes it's time we draw swords jesus right and jesus turns and calls him satan this is what the disciples Kept arguing with Jesus about. So, I mean, if, if, so if you've had that battle in your head, don't feel bad. I have too. If, you, if those are the voices in your head, you're in good company. This is exactly what the disciples are, are battling with. Wait, this stuff doesn't work in the fallen world. It's not meant to get us into the seats of power in the fallen world. It's meant to reflect the kingdom of God, right? To show the difference. And so, and so... Uh, I want to look at this conversation. Let's look at this conversation Jesus has with the disciples. In the end, this is a, no, in the middle of this bracket of Mark chapter 9. It's the second time. Let's see, verse 30. It's the second time he tells them he's going to suffer and he's going to die. And predictably, they don't get it. They left that place and they passed through Galilee. And Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he's teaching his disciples and what was he teaching them he says hey guys the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of this sounds like we're on repeat right the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men they will kill him and after three days he will rise again so jesus has announced his kingdom is this cross-shaped kingdom but they're still fuzzy it says when he was in the house he asked him what were you guys arguing about there on the road while I was telling you about my whole, you know, death and suffering thing, what were you guys talking about? And they kept quiet, mm, because they were arguing about who was the greatest disciple. (laughs) How glorious are these guys, right? Oh, man. If you've ever been to a pastor's conference, it sounds a lot like this, I have to be honest. Uh, I'm not gonna lie. I've been guilty of this, i've been guilty of this it's because we're we baked into this right it's it's like part of our culture it's why we have christian magazines that every year their best-selling issue is the hundred biggest churches as if that equals the hundred best churches because that's the way we think right this in spite of the fact that we follow a man who says if you will be the greatest you must be the servant of all the best churches, I just guarantee you, are the ones that nobody's heard about except for the community that they're blessing. That's where Jesus does his work, and, and they're changing lives. The The reason why some churches don't see the power of God is because they're so preoccupied with their own greatness. Hmm. God, may, not, may that not be us. Amen. May it not be us. Uh, I say that humbly and, and convictedly. Uh, may that not be us. Jesus shines brightness, brightest in our weakness, not in our strengths. So these disciples, even though Jesus, he's speaking very plainly to them, they cannot imagine a kingdom with suffering or martyrdom or humiliation at the center of it. They can't. I mean, a kingdom built on serving, a kingdom built on nonviolent forgiveness and enemy love... They can't imagine it. So, it says Jesus sits down. And whenever Jesus sits down in the gospels, you know, you better get ready because we're getting serious. And he called the 12 to him. He says, listen, and I know, again, these these are nice Christian words, but let me, anyone, he says, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. He says, okay, you want to see greatness? Guys, I'll tell you what greatness is. And then he took a little child from among them, and he placed them in the middle of the 12, and then he took the child in his arms, and he says, whoever welcomes one of these little ones into my name, in my name, welcomes me. Now, it's interesting, because for us, when we read this, we think, that's adorable. That's really sweet. Because um, children, you know, we think are adorable. They're like, you know, better than puppies, right? Children are like little precious moment figurines, you know? Um, for us childlike faith, that sounds like, that's a good thing. But in the ancient world, there was nothing good about childlike at all. Children were a drain on resources. Only 30 to 50% of children made it to adulthood and they had absolutely no rights, you know? Uh, up until the, in Jewish culture, up until they were bar, bar mitzvahed or bat mitzvahed, they, they they weren't even considered like real humans yet. And in the Roman culture, they were even worse. I won't even go into it. You know, the way they were treated as things. No social honor, no social status. And what does Jesus do? He says, guys, I'm gonna suffer, I'm gonna die. And oh, you were talking about the greatest. Well, let me show you who the greatest is. And he pulls this no status anonymous kid into the middle. And he said, whoever welcomes this young one welcomes me. And again, all those good church people are like, yeah, yeah, I know. But, but what's Jesus doing? He's revealing to us that he actually conceives of a community of, of disciples that would welcome and give honor to marginalized people, oppressed people, no status people, and that when we do that, we are welcoming Jesus in our midst. It's like an entirely different way of thinking, But it's totally consistent with what Jesus does over and over throughout his life. Jesus, and what he does himself, he takes the place of lowest social honor in order to, to expend himself for the sake of other people. And then he invites us to take up your cross and follow me. So what does that look like? There's a beautiful passage uh, the Apostle Paul writes in um, his letter to the Philippian church. Philippians, Philippian church, yeah. In chapter two, he says, in your relationships with other people, with one another. So let's, let's just assume he wrote this to Generations Church. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God. Now what that means, being in very nature God, that means he, ha- he was God. He had all the rights, privileges, prerogatives of God, like he was God, right? Everything that being God meant you could have, Jesus has all of that. Now, when you and I, if you and I have all of that, we ain't giving that up, right? I mean, that's a sweet place we've achieved right there. But Jesus, he has it all. And it says he did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, but rather he made himself nothing. How did he do that? By taking the very nature of a servant, in the form of a human, a servant. So w- we would agree that's a pretty big step down for God to take. And then not only, not only as a human, to become as a servant. I mean, it would have been a step down to, for him to you know, come back as a human king, but he came as a servant. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. He descended that ladder of social honor I mean, it's about as low he, he dying literally the most he died literally the most socially dishonorable unspeakable death you can imagine in the ancient world, death on a cross. This is the sh- cross-shaped greatness that he models for us. This is cross-shaped greatness. You and I we sit in a um, we sit between a religious culture and a secular culture that both worship at the altar of bigger and better and more. That's just that's the waters we soak in. We follow this Jesus who blazes a trail into humility, the loss of social status, not claiming our rights, but rather yielding our rights for the sake of other people, not claiming our entitlements, but yielding our entitlements for the sake of others. Not exercising power over other people so we can get them to behave the way we want to, but serving them, serving those people so that they sense how much the Lord is reaching out to them in love and not in vengeance. Not using what we have to our own advantage and gain, but using what he's given us, using all the blessings he's given us for the sake of others, even if it humiliates us in the process. Nobody told me that's what I was signing up for, right? When when I prayed that prayer and invited Jesus into my heart. So, what I want to do today, I want to flesh this out by telling you a story this morning, and I have to be really careful. Um, and I really debated about this, but it's a it's because it's a delicate story. And I don't know, there might be young ears here I can see there's young ears here So I'll kind of use euphemisms where I can And there's older ears who are also sensitive I understand that too um, But I heard this story on a podcast recently And I verified it, and you know, it's sources And it's true, it's a true story And it really captures what uh, the, Jesus has done here in Philippians 2 And that he invites us to do So, so just bear with me if you will there was a couple who worked in a long-term foster facility where kids go when they are so mistreated and hurt that it takes a whole rehabilitation process before they're ever put back into a, they can never be put into a foster home. They have experienced the most traumatic stuff you can imagine. And one day at this facility run by this couple Uh, they met a a 10-year-old little girl and she came in and the first night she was there she went number two in her room and then she spread that all over the wall of her room over the course of the night so the next morning the couple who worked they came in and on seeing this this couple had been they'd been taught that this whole facility's approach to these kids is don't react you don't scold but you get on the inside of their lives to try to understand why they're doing what they're doing. So they didn't scold her at all. Um, they said, okay, can, can, we, can we help? Can we help clean this up? And they, they, they also told her, hey, um, sweetheart, if you wanna do this again, would you just mind doing this on, do it on this section of the wall over here, not, not all over. And then they proceeded to clean it up for this little girl. And this happened for weeks, every night until this little girl felt safe enough to say why it was she did that. It turns out her father was very abusive in the worst way any of us can possibly imagine. And while this was happening, uh, I think she was about four or five, she had an accident. Uh, in one of these incidents with her father. She had an accident, and the smell of the accident drove the father away. This little girl realized that if she took the stuff and smeared it all over her room, she would be safe. So for her, what would have smelled revolting was the smell of what? Safety. And when they learned this, this remarkable couple... Uh, I can't imagine this, but they entered into her world. And so they helped her do this for weeks, every night. They helped her do this to communicate to her that they wanted her to be safe too. And this went on for months until one day she didn't need that smell to feel safe anymore. Now I heard this story and how that couple... Approached this wounded little girl. And I couldn't help but think of this Philippians passage of Jesus just kind of rolling up his sleeves, right? And being found in likeness, he took the odor of our world. He took the revenge and the pettiness and the, you know, the questing for greatness that we all have and all that lust and greed and power, all that we consider normal and safe, He stepped into the ugliness and he stood there with us in the middle of it. He stood with the demon-possessed people and the people who were excluded from the religious communities. He stood with the rich and the religious leadership. He stood in the middle of it all and he got dirty and he he stepped into what we thought was normal to introduce the possibility that no, that's not normal at all. What we thought was the, the smell, and the feel of of safety. It's actually not. And I'm like, wow, this is a picture of Jesus. But then the kicker is, Jesus invites me to do that for other people. To model this, to be Jesus into the world. To not just stand up here and proclaim, you know, easy judgments from a stage and walk away. To not sit and have a bunch of opinions on social media. To not lob just truth bombs, you know, at faceless crowds, thinking my rightness is going to solve the world's problems. And not just to stay at a safe distance, but to join people in their normal and pray that God might use me to open up a possibility. That that isn't safety and security, but it's a substitute for something better that is. So friends, I know this is not like pep rally kind of stuff. It's, it's, it's thick, it's heavy stuff. I know, it's, it's hard, heavy stuff. This is, this is Lent stuff, right? But Jesus, what's amazing is he actually calls this way of life light and easy. And for those of us who have done nothing but, but quest after our own agendas and work on our own power for all the things we want and to be frustrated by our own limitations and we're driven by self-desire and self-preservation, and self-glorification and trying to defend our good name or something like that, there comes a point, whether you're old like me or much younger and wiser, there comes a point where it just gets exhausting to keep up with it. And you realize it's just not the way we were meant to live. It's not the way we were meant to live. And it's at that moment that Jesus invites us to come and take up our cross. What does that mean? Does that mean not having any fun? No, it's not anything about that. Does that mean that God doesn't want to bless you and prosper you and heal you and fill you with his joy and his peace? No way. That's not what it means. But you and I, have been given, I've been born into rights and that I can claim and entitlements that I can insist on. But what Jesus makes me wanna do is he inspires me to, uh, to, to want to reorient my life to be the kind of person who doesn't claim, who doesn't insist, who doesn't seek power, doesn't seek greatness who doesn't feel the need to defend my good character against critics or honor. Uh, I, don't see, I don't need to seek power over people or coerce other people. I wanna be the kind of person who is like Jesus. I wanna be self-giving and not grasping and that is a daily crucifixion of the flesh. It takes it daily. Because the old me is always right there wanting all that stuff. But this, friends, this is the heart of Jesus who in every way, being God, did not use that to his advantage. But in fact, what, what did Jesus do? He disadvantaged himself in every conceivable way. He came uh, under, uh, you know, the auspices of a scandalous birth uh, as a backwater laborer. He, was, he remained obscure for 30 years. And even in his glory, when he's ministering, he's telling people, no, 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 don't tell anybody now about this. Don't tell anybody, Right? I mean, every disadvantage Jesus could lay upon himself, he did. And so that none of us could shake our fists and say, you don't understand, you don't get it. No, he gets it. He gets it. He's that couple, that beautiful couple, that stepped into the pain of a little girl. And so the the invite for us is to emulate that, to become more like Jesus. And one of the, you know, just visions of our church is to be a people who are helping each other become more like Jesus we do this in community Uh, to become more like Jesus and that starts in so many different ways but even in your own life it starts with not claiming you know like when you're at work um, and someone takes credit for something you said or you did it's just letting it go right learning to let because it's so dumb but there's that there's that part of me that's always like wait that was my idea (laughs) right (laughs) I know nobody else does stuff like that I'm sure but it, it, it's owning up to the, just to what it is to be part of the first world. You guys, we live in the first world. First world problems all around us, right? And, and to be part of that and to acknowledge, yes, it's privilege. And not to be offended when somebody points that out. Of course it is. But to realize, my goodness, we are, we are privileged. So what does that mean? What do we do with that? Or what does the gospel require of us? As cross-shaped people, it means letting go of, of the train, getting off that train of, of being so, you know, having to be, look awesome to everybody uh, or admired or even liked. As a church community, who cares, right? Uh, let's just be faithful. Let's be humble and let Jesus shine all the brighter. Amen. And will you pray with me? Holy Father God. Oh, I love you, Lord. Lord Jesus, first of all, I can't help but be just struck by how much it is that you have pursued us, how much it is that you love us, Lord, how much it is that you tolerate us and that you put up with it when we read that simple sentence, taking the form of a human. I can't imagine that. And Lord, you invite us into this way of life that is just so contrary to our world and knowing that there are pieces of it the way this invitation you give us there's some of it I find so compelling Lord and there's other pieces that are so challenging God I just pray that you would continue to refresh our imaginations about what it is to follow how it is that we're to live not and not striving or earning or proving in some way to you our worthiness but rather just responding lord god to the great love that's already been shown the grace that's already been shown so god we invite you into our daily lives today those intimate moments lord that we the moments we've been holding back as our own not because we're worthy of your daily presence but lord god because we're hungry we're thirsty we're desperate for you we need you lord We want to put off all the ways in which we chase those empty, foul things that feel like protection and safety. Lord, we want want to sit and learn to trust and to rest. Help us, Lord, as we pray today. In the name of Jesus, amen. Hallelujah. Amen. We'll stand to your feet this morning. Our prayer partners are coming forward. If there's anything you need prayer about, please come forward. Don't leave without asking these guys to pray with you. They are faith filled. Prayer warriors. They have like PhDs in prayer. I'm telling you what they know how to pray. And so it will bless you as much as it blesses them to pray for you and to, to walk into that, to step into that situation, whatever it is, to step into that with you and to pray for you. Amen. And uh, if you want to say yes to Jesus for the first time today, after, after this hard message, my goodness, God bless you. It'll be, it'll be a much different kind of message on Easter. I promise. Um, but yeah, this is the time say yes. Cause he does, he, his way is easy and his burden is light it really is he, he just you can't even believe it until you step into it and he loves you and he forgives you everything everything it's all forgotten in the mind of Jesus he loves you so much sisters and brothers may the Lord bless you and keep you may He make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you may he lift his countenance and just pour out his mercy into your life in this day that we're living in grace and peace be with you bye-bye